So, as Eddie said, we're in John 17 um, and the last six verses of John 17. And in your Pew Bibles, that's on page 1085. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them my glory, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, here we are at the uh, third and final sermon uh, sermon of this series on short series on chapter 17 of John. And um, we've reached actually the end of what is often known as Jesus' final discourse, his last discourse, his farewell discourse, which began in chapter 14. And um, it's actually good to pay very close attention to those final words of Jesus because they encapsulate everything that he taught his disciples. And they're the last words that he spoke before he would be betrayed and crucified in the end of his life, the last recorded by John here. And you know, it occurred to me that as part of our spiritual preparation for Easter, we could do well to just read those chapters, 14 to 17, because um, in doing so, you will really get a feel for what Jesus wanted to say to his disciples at the very end, and, it's, and you'll be surprised, maybe as I was, that how simple and straightforward his instructions are. I mean, basically, he, it amounts to, uh, first of all, um, observe the commandments and Jesus' own teachings, then believe in the indwelling of the Father and the Son, and finally, remain in the vine, remain united. But coming back to today's reading, um, I, if you have the, still have the text in front of you, you will see that chapter 17 is divided into three parts, and we've been preaching on each of these parts over the last three weeks. The first was about Jesus praying for himself and his glorification. Um, the second was about the disciples praying for them. And finally, he's praying for us. He's praying for all that would follow. And it's very interesting. He prays for those that are not yet 
in the kingdom. In fact, those that are not even born yet, which is very interesting. But before exploring this further, I think that uh, we should just take a moment to pray and let's just ask God to open, open our minds to all this. Lord our God, once again we ask you to just open our hearts and our ears and our minds that we may hear if you have something to say to us specifically this evening. And Lord, we want to love you more and we, want, we are called to your service and we, we just want to, to, to serve you uh, this evening just by taking in what you, what you spe- how you speak to us. Well, as I said, our reading of John 17 verses 20-26, uh, shows that he prays for all the disciples, all that would follow through the centuries, all his followers that would come. And that, of course, includes you and me. And why would he pray for our unity? What, he prays that we would be united, that we would be one as he and the Father is one. And the reason he gives is so that the world may come to believe in him. So we, it's not just for our benefit, but so the world would come so they would be drawn to him. And it occurs to me that Jesus' view of us, of the Christian community, is much higher than the view that we have of ourselves. And he expects much more from us than we expect from ourselves. I don't think he ever expected us to be content to live in what some people call holy huddles. I mean, he doesn't see us as passive Christians coming to church on Sundays, but he, as his greatly beloved disciples who grow in discipleship, who create, who make new disciples, who create future generations of disciples. And so all of these, but like all of the previous disciples, we cannot do any of this without actually, first of all, submitting to God. We can't do it without his help. Like all those who have followed him over the past many centuries, we are simple men and women who in our own generation have been lifted out of our past failures, forgiven our past sins, and cleansed by the blood of Christ. Again, not for our own benefit, but in order to have a real impact on the society around us. And you must forgive me if I use an analogy that you may have heard me use several times before. But God... Jesus did not call us to be thermometers, but to be thermostats. And we all know the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer reads the temperature, and a thermostat thermostat changes it. And as God's thermostats, men and women like you and I have been moved from being self-centered to being God-centered, Christ-centered, knowing and loving God and serving those that he sends into our lives. And we also also experience a special unity with one another through it, because serving, knowing, loving, and serving God together creates a certain affinity, a certain love between the believers. And also we, we, we no longer have that identity. Our primary identity may no longer be as a English or Scottish or Hungarian or Nigerian or whatever, wherever we come from, or even labor or conservative. Our primary identity now, we may be, remain all these things, but our primary identity actually comes from being sons and daughters of God and servants of our Lord Jesus Christ together. 
I've tried to describe the kind of unity that Jesus was praying for in our reading. And it's no accident that we reflect on this kind of unity at a time when we've all gone through two and a half years of the most appalling disunity in our country. And, you know, I sometimes think of what Jesus himself has to say about that kind of thing. He says, you know, he, he, he is quoted as saying uh, in, uh, in, I think it's in John's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, he says, Any, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. In our lives here tonight, many of us have experienced, either directly or indirectly, both unity and disunity. Uh, We've maybe experienced it in our families, uh, in our workplaces, um, in our nation, of course, and maybe, sadly, even in churches. And many of us still bear the scars of disunity and conflict that we have endured and suffered and we have learned, really, that, 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 that we, not to live with it, hopefully, but we, to, to try and seek to lay it down at God's feet. And I, I think that if you're suffering tonight from any conflict or disunity, effects of something terrible that's happened to you in your life, don't leave church tonight without getting one of us to pray for you, because God wants you to lay down your burdens and to experience his forgiveness. That's by the way. I've already said that the Bible, and both the Old and the New Testament, has a great deal to say about unity and disunity. It's one of the great themes of Scripture. Basically, the message is that real unity can only be found under God. The Bible teaches us the the kind of unity that brings enduring peace and mutual cooperation can only be achieved when individuals and nations and communities actually put themselves under God's dominion. In the Old Testament, we see repeatedly how God's people, whenever they were united in worship and obeying God's commandments, they did really well. And how the moment that uh, um, they they turned their backs on God and went their own way, uh, things went horribly wrong for them. At such times, um, they slipped into idolatry, we know that. And it brought all kinds of conflicts and confusion and disaster on the nation. In the New Testament, there are numerous examples where the followers of, Je- of, the followers of Jesus need to be, remain united, of, of pleas to the, to, to the, to the, to the followers to be, to be one. Jesus himself tells us that when there is real power, there's real power in the unity of believers when they pray together, particularly when they come together united in prayer. And you know that verse, I tell you that where two or three are gathered, uh, you know, and agree about anything and ask me, my Father in heaven will grant it to you. The Apostle Paul, at the beginning of his letter to Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, looks ahead at a time when we will reach uni- the unity of faith um, and the Son of God will, be, the unity of faith and the Son of God will become mature in us uh, and the whole, we reach the stature and fullness of Christ. Stature and fullness, completion reached through unity. But let's be clear that unity among Christians is not the same as uniformity. 
In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And I don't have to tell you that the the boundaries and the the love of God extends far beyond our denominations. I'm reminded of that every time we have communion in this church. Invariably, the, the officiating minister will look out at us and invite all, all who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior to share in the bread and wine, regardless of their denomination. And as Christians, we're more, we are, of course, united by some core beliefs, uh, which are encapsulated in the Apostles' Creed. And we often recite this either in song or in words uh, during our services. But arguing over minor interpretations and practices gives no glory to God and only builds barriers around our fellowship. Proverbs 17:19 says just that. It's in the New Living Bible translation. It says, anyone who loves to quarrel loves sin, and anyone who trusts in high walls invites disaster. Maybe like me, you can think of someone who should read that. <laughs> in heaven, there will be no walls. There will be no, uh, neither high church, no low church, Um, I always remember the woman who said to me, you know, I don't mind high church. I don't mind low church. It's long church I can't stand. (laughs) Well, (laughs) this coming Friday, all the churches will come together, uh, all the local churches on Good Friday. Members from every, uh, most of the churches in our area will gather under the big cross uh, that has been erected on, on, uh, will be erected on Blackheath. We will go as well and process out about 10 o'clock in the morning. We'll leave from here carrying our own cross, I think. And the interesting thing is that the representatives of all the different churches will be reading uh, bits of the Passion Narrative, and each one will be giving a short meditation. And I find it very moving because for one hour, for an hour or two, whatever time it takes, you know, Catholics and Baptists and Methodists and Anglicans and Reformed and Free Church and all the other believers come together uh, and in, in the very fact and come together in the truth that Jesus has died for all of us. And the longer that I have personally tried to live my Christian life, the more I've concluded that it's not for me to decide who is or is not in God's family. I often think of Jesus' definition of his family, that Jesus' definition of his family is probably wider than mine. And I'm I'm challenged by the words. I'm still trying to understand them fully. I probably never will in this life. But he says, Jesus, he says uh, in, in, in John chapter 10, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will hear my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. You know, there are many different kinds of of unity. Um, We've been thinking about the unity of Christians, but this is not the same as the kind of unity that we experience in the world. Uh, There are many things that bring us together um, uh, and unite us in some way. Uh, Our hobbies, um, our politics, uh, maybe even sport. Well, sport does. I mean, think of all the, the football clubs that have the word united in them, you know. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with all the worldly other 
types of unity as long as they don't replace God. Anything that dominates our lives and blocks out God and the guidance of his Holy Spirit is idolatry. The Bible teaches that there can be no true unity unless there is true submission to God. And if you look at fundamentalist movements, there is unity there, but it's not a godly unity. I've just been rereading a most fascinating book. Um, it's by an award-winning Brazilian, a Christian award-winning Brazilian religious historian and philosopher. He's called um, Suarez de Azevedo. And the book is called uh, Men of a Single Book. Men of a Single Book. And it's a study of secular and religious fundamentalist movements that have attracted many people um, and may even have a religious label, but in one form or another actually deny God. Azevedo makes the absolutely staggering statement that the biggest threat to our lives and our civilization does not come from extreme socialism or extreme nationalism or even extreme Islamism. It comes from atheism. And as I thought about this, I, I gulped. But Azevedo actually has his own definition, his expanded definition of atheism. And he def it defines it like this. An atheist may pay lip service to, to God, to a God, and can be, quote, characterized by an emotional and blind attachment to an idea or set of ideas, by the dogmatic refusal to accept that these ideas can be wrong or relative, or that opposite ideas are also valid. It is the very opposite, don't you see, of humble submission to God and openness to the work of the Holy Spirit. While faith draws its power from above, um, and for Christians that means the Word of God and the revelation and the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, this type of, quote, atheism, unquote, derives its power from below, uh, from some human, partial, selective abstraction of a more fundamental truth. And it leads to what uh, Azevedo calls communalism, um, which quickly then takes the form of interreligious conflict, uh, leading us, as we've so often seen, to rivalry to the very death of neighboring religious communities. And he gives all many examples of this, and I won't bore you with all of them, but he, he looks at, for instance, the, 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 the Roman Catholic Croats and the Eastern Orthodox Serbs in former Yugoslavia and how they, they had a war. And then he looks at the communal conflict between Buddhists and Hindus in Sri Lanka and the bitter antagonism between Christian Greeks and Muslim Turks on the island of Cyprus, and the violence between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. And he has a very detailed sort of exposition of, of, where, of the spirituality, quote, of those people. And, of course, he deals with Islam and Islamism and ISIS at great length. And I wish I had time to, to, to expand that, but I can't. But anyhow, what he, what he says, though, the essence of, of the truth that I learned from him is that such groups are not rooted in faith of God. They, 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 they suffer from something which he calls collective egoism or egoism. Collective 
egoism is what they, what, what they practice. And Ezevida has gone on to study fundamentalist groups in great depth, and it includes, um, he, he concludes that they have a unity but lack any personal spirituality or connection with God or God-centeredness. True submission to God's word among them is, 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 not, is not the case. In fact, most of them violate the tenets, all of them violate the fundamental tenets of their own creeds. Uh, that's, I find that very enlightening and frightening, actually. And as I read this, I remembered the words of James in chapter 4 of James' letter, where he said, what, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire and you do not have, and you kill and you covet, and you cannot get what you want, and you quarrel and you fight and you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask God, you do not receive because you ask for the wrong motives. And that may be so that you may spend it on your own um, pleasures. He said, so in his conclusion, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And I believe that's what Jesus wants from us in, in today's reading. He prays that we will come close to him, that we'll stay united to him. His prayer is that we should be one as the Father and he are one. And we all know that when there's unity in the body of Christ, then it draws people in. And where there's disunity and conflict, it drives them away. And it's important we realize this at this time at St. John's when we're entering a whole new phase of our life together. Our church is growing and um, we're making significant changes to accommodate that growth. It's felt more by the morning people than by the evening congregation. And some of us have actually got comfortable with the old way of doing things. In fact, I'm one of them. And uh, we may struggle, as I have, with, suddenly with all this, this new stuff. And it's at, at this time, it's very important that uh, what matters is that our strength and our unity uh, remains intact. And that we pray that we will be preserved as one body and a body that's united together. Um, I, 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 as I struggle with comfort and being uncomfortable, um, I think of the, the little saying, you know, Jesus came to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And I think very, some of us will be slightly afflicted maybe, and the Lord would comfort us. That we will be comforted in our unity of purpose and believing that he has called us to be and to make new, new disciples. We live in very challenging times, and not many of us can really affect and change the course that our nation is taking, but all of us can influence the community around us. And one way we can do this is by uh, modeling the kind of unity that Jesus prayed would be the hallmark of his believers. Our unity will draw others in, will draw others to Christ. Our unity will draw us, keep us drawn together with each other, one in purpose, one in mind, even though we're so different in many ways. Let me end by reading uh, for you the first, reading with you perhaps, the first three verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. He says, 
As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, and be patient, bearing with one another in love, and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace.